Hi, this is Jean-Pierre Mobasser with the Society for Minimally Invasive Spine Surgery. SMIS has online CME credits. There are 25 online modules with a wide range of topics, all dedicated to minimally invasive spine surgery. Each module offers one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. The modules are free for SMIS members, and they are $35 each module for non-members. If you're going to do many of these, it makes sense to just join the SMIS Society as it's a cheaper route to go. Uh, more modules are continually being added and can be found on the esmis.org website. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Nursery Podcast. Today, we are absolutely elated. We have a very, very special guest. Joining us today is Susie Orman and Mike Groff. Now, those of you who have been living in a hovel for the last 20 years may not know who Susie is. Susie is the author of over 10 New York Times bestsellers. She is well known as a major, major advocate for women in finance, that is women handling their finances and getting smart about it. She has a book. Uh, that just got published this year called The Ultimate Retirement Guide for 50 Plus, Winning Strategies to Make Your Money Last a Lifetime. And uh, Susie is fantastic. So Susie, welcome to the podcast. And Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Doc. Thanks, Mike. So I wanted to, to give a little segue and kudos to my wife, because when I started dating her in 1995, she got me watching you, Suze. She got me uh, started because I had no money. I lived in a garage and had a lot of debt. And she said, you got to watch this lady. And I and we watched all of your episodes on PBS and whatnot. We became hooked immediately. And Amy is the one who got us together today because she heard about your story leading, of course, JP to reach out to you. And, and Mike Groff is a friend of the podcast. So that's how we, we got on today. And we are so fortunate to have you on with us and for you to share your time with us. Right. Just one little correction for you is that, you know, it's not just about women getting their money right. It's about everybody getting their money right, because money doesn't have a sex, it doesn't have a race, it doesn't have a religion. And so my whole mission in life is that women and money and the men smart enough to listen to me as well. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, Susie, today we count ourselves not just among the men smart enough, I hope, to listen to you, but those privileged to do so. Today, you've decided to join us on the show and share with us and our audience your story of a recent personal health scare, which quite honorably, in my estimation, you've made very public. Like so many people who become our patients in this country and around the world, you gradually noticed problems that you were having and slow developing symptoms that eventually rose to a level that you took action and sought help. But unlike so many of those folks, you have such a broad public platform and such a voice 
that we really can't thank you enough for shouting from the mountaintop, so to speak, and using your own experience as a clarion call for other busy people just trying to get through their day-to-day -day lives who may also be hesitating or struggling to accept that they need to see a physician. Yeah, JP, you're absolutely right. This is like a public health message, and we really are honored to have her on with us. So in light of that, we're going to have Susie and Mike Groff, who was uh, involved in her care, take over the conversation a bit and talk about what actually happened. All right, Doc, I'll let you start. Well, I was going to ask you, uh, you know, how it came to pass and how you felt about it when we first met uh, at Brigham. So, so uh, of course, you know, Susie Orman would tell you to do something and then take it away from you totally. So, but, but basically, it's before I even talk about meeting you or whatever, and I will forever consider you one of my lifesavers, is that for many of you who don't know me, where have you been? It's true. But for years <laughs> now, almost 40 years now, I've been talking about the main internal obstacle to wealth is fear and how it's so true that when you don't have money, when you have credit card debt, when you've just lost your job, you don't know what to do and you're just so afraid you get paralyzed. You're paralyzed to open up your statements. You're paralyzed to do anything. And the only way to conquer fear is through action. And so one would think that I would know that you can't let fear stop you, that you have to just go for it, that you have to take action. But when it came to my own health, I did not listen to everything that I've been telling people now for 40 years. I did not stand in my truth. And it really could have cost me an incredible quality of life. And to make a very long story short, over approximately a year and a half, a two-year period of time, I kept noticing little things going wrong. First, my knee started to buckle. So I called up a doctor and they said, oh, Susie, you probably just extended your knee, whatever it may be. You just need a brace. And then as you know, I, little things, I couldn't pick up my right leg. And somebody said, oh, another doctor said, oh, Susie, your, your quadriceps just need more exercise. Come on, you can do this. And little by little, things started to go wrong with my body. But I didn't want to pay attention to it because I thought, all right, these doctors were right and I didn't have time. I'm a busy woman. But as time went on, the symptoms started to get really serious where I was dropping my fork. I couldn't write. My finger and my, my index finger and my thumb started to go numb. And there was always excuse for what it could be. But deep down inside, I knew something was seriously wrong. And I was afraid to find out. So when the general practitioner was on the phone with me, now we're in COVID this year, and says, Susie, you need to come back to Florida. I live on a little private island in the Bahamas. You need to come back and we need three MRIs. And I went, okay, on what? And as soon as he said, your brain, your upper thoracics and something else, I didn't even hear was the third one, I was terrified. I don't tell me something's wrong with my brain. Don't I don't want to hear it. It took me one month after he told me I needed those MRIs to go back to Florida and get them. And again, to make a very long story short, 
It was during the first MRI that they were doing that all of a sudden I heard my GP's voice in the MRI room saying, Susie, we need to talk. And it turned out that they found a tumor. And I'll let Mike describe that in a second. And essentially what they said to me was, you need to get this out yesterday. Yesterday, Susie, you cannot wait. And, on, and this was on July 20th. And honest to God, or actually it was on July 21st. And it was like, really? And at first I thought, well, I'll just go to see a neurologist here in Boca. And then, you know, I sent it, I sent the MRI by chance. Well, I sent the MRI not by chance, by, you know, by chance to a friend that I had met by the name of Dr. Ron Walls who at the time was COO of Brigham Women's Hospital. And, and I sent it to him and immediately he responded and he said, I need you to call me first thing tomorrow morning. I called him at like 6.30 in the morning and he doesn't want to talk to me. Then another neurologist by the name of Dr. Nino Chioka was on the phone. He wanted to talk to me. And he said, Susie Orman, this is not a typical surgery you cannot do it in Boca. You need to have a specialist do it. There are only a few doctors that can do this. And when can you be here? And then to make a very long story short, I got on the plane. I was there the next day, the 22nd. We arrived at noon. I was in the office with Dr. Mike at one o'clock that day. And we were in surgery the very next day. That's when I met Dr. Mike. Okay, now you take it away, Doc. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting that you talk about fear because in our line of work, I think a lot of the things we do uh, can be scary. And they're obviously scary to patients. I think sometimes they're scary to us as well. Um, and I've always said, uh, you know, in my life experience so far, it's okay to be, a to be fearful. It's okay to be afraid. What's not okay is to let that affect your behavior and to let that affect the things that you do. Um, and I think, you know, talking to a neurosurgical audience, I would say there were several things about your case that were um, concerning or, or scary. And, and one that's important is that although your neurologic exam was almost completely normal, you, the history that you gave and I'm a big believer that the history is is the most important thing in all of medicine, and that includes neurosurgery. The history that you gave of your leg giving out, of your arm being so weak that you had trouble feeding yourself, and um, of this incipient weakness made me feel like in a lot of ways we were kind of sitting on the edge of a precipice. And even though your exam was normal, I knew there was potential for things to work out, you know, not well. Um, and then when I got a chance to look at your MRI scan and saw, you know, what was a, a pretty classic dumbbell shaped schwannoma at C4-5, that also was concerning. You know, it took up a good 80% of the spinal canal, but also the fact that it was going out through the C4-5 foramen, um, you know, this audience will know that the C5 root uniquely innervates the deltoid so that if we do anything to harm the C5 nerve root, it will manifest with weakness postoperatively. And, and again, on exam, 
your deltoid strength is completely normal. So there are a bunch of things about it that uh, were concerning, but at the same time, we know that this is the kind of thing that we take care of, you know, on a routine basis. So I felt confident uh, that I could take good care of you. And I always feel in those moments that um, we're so lucky, um, meaning contemporary neurosurgeons are lucky in the sense of the history that we stand upon and the mentors that we've had and the, the teachers that we've had that have taught us so that we don't have to figure these things out on our own. Um, and a, a mentor that's very dear to me is uh, Chandra Sen, who's taught me a lot about uh, you know intradural extramedullary tumors and, and how to take good care of people. Uh, so all of those things were concerning, but at the same time, I felt confident that uh, we could take good care of you and that things would work out well. But what was interesting, everybody now, from a patient's viewpoint, is that the other neurologist that we had spoken to before we arrived there at Brigham, because obviously Susie Orman has a tumor, everybody's freaking out about it, everybody's telling me one fender bumper, you know, I'm a paraplegic, I could be a quadriplegic. I mean, to say that everybody else scared me, that the medical profession scared me, is putting it mildly. And what was interesting when I was sitting in Dr. Mike's office with him is his demeanor was incredibly calm and his demeanor was one that was, that was really self-assured. It was like, I didn't sense doubt. I didn't sense any panic. I did ask him um, on a scale of one to 10, how difficult is this? And I believe you said a seven or an eight. And, but, and what were the complications? What could go wrong? But there was such a manner of that, I know what I'm doing. I'm not afraid to do this. And also that I knew that Dr. Nino was also going to be in the operating room just in case. And everything, it's, I can't tell you that I didn't worry at all. I mean, maybe I should have been worried that I was going to go have surgery the next morning, but we went back to the little hotel that we were staying at. And KT, my spouse and I, I mean, we had, we had everything that was bad for us. <laughs> I mean, and watch TV, but we weren't freaked out that I was going to be having a major operation the next morning. So, you know, Mike, that really speaks a lot to you and the manner of somebody when they're with you. I mean, I can't remember really when a doctor, you spent over an hour with me and, and you were not in a rush and you were just there. You were totally present. And as a patient, when you can feel the presence of a doctor and him not or her not rushing off to do something else because there's another appointment, but giving 100% to the patient, the patient then turns over 100% trust to that doctor. So you had a lot to do with that success and the, how calm I was when I actually went into the operating room. Yeah, it, it's very nice of you to say that. And uh, we are lucky that we are, you know, it's not just me as one individual, but uh, part of a, a team that all works together well. You know, Nino's part of that. Obviously, uh, 
pathologists and the nurses in the OR are all a part of that and making it a success. You know, one of the things that I learned through my interaction with you is that I've always known that an important part of being a doctor is to be a teacher. But the complement of that is that an important part of being a patient is to be a learner. And I thought you really excelled at that in terms of asking appropriate questions, but also, you know, hearing the answers and internalizing them. Um, and I do think that's something that uh, all of uh, medicine can benefit from is a little bit more exposition about what it means to be a good doctor, but also what does it mean to be, you know, a good patient and how do you advocate for yourself in a way that is truly effective? You know, I'm, yeah. I'm curious mm -hmm. what lessons you'd like to have people take away from, you know, this experience that you've been through. Yeah. Um, for myself and KT, for the two of us, it happened so fast. I mean, think about it. The, 21st in the afternoon, we're getting an MRI, and on the 23rd, we're in Boston in surgery. So it happened so fast, we were almost in shock and didn't even realize that we were in shock. And it, you know, I think I came through it a whole lot better than KT did because it wasn't until maybe a month or even two months, it's been three months now, everybody. It, as we're recording this, it it wasn't until about two months after everything happened, we're back on the island, and I think I'm doing relatively well in everything, KT starts to cry, like just hysterically cry. And all of a sudden, she was hit with everything that could have gone wrong, that could have happened, and what we had just really been through. So one thing that I learned from it, and there were times that I got seriously depressed as well, because it was like, what just happened? So I think what's really important, and it's something just to think about, is that I understand very well that as a surgeon and doctors, your job is to do the surgery, get through it, the patient goes home, maybe you see them again, maybe their regular doctor sees them again, but you don't really have a lot of contact with that person anymore, the surgeon. And it's really the surgeon that has gained the trust. It was you, Mike, that gained our trust. Now, I'm lucky enough that we've been able to stay in touch with you, but most of the time that doesn't happen, truthfully. You're now speaking to other people and other, your other doctors and things like that. And I think people need to realize, doctors need to really realize that sometimes it's harder when you're through the intense pain, when you're through the part that you're in, you know, the hospital, and then you're on a walker and then you're finally off the walker and all of those things, that's when it kind of hits you because now you're dealing with your emotions versus just your physical ailments and you still have pain and you're still dealing with certain things at times, but it's, I think the emotional part of it, the cognitive part of it also has to be dealt with on an ongoing basis, especially for people who don't have support. Like I have the most incredible person in my life, KT. Now, Dr. Mike can tell you he tasted her cooking and everything, right? But, but um, a lot of people are all alone. It's very sad when I think about that. 
Yeah, KT is amazing. And uh, this phenomenon that you talk about, you know, in neurophysiology, there's the sympathetic system that's the fight or flight, and then there's parasympathetic that's sort of rest and recover. And when we're wound up in an intense situation, the sympathetic really takes over. But then there's this concept of parasympathetic overshoot that once all the stress is removed and once you're on the other side of it, uh, it does get very emotional. And uh, it gives you a chance then to process and think about uh, all that had happened. Yeah, but people a lot of times need help in that because they don't know what to do with it. They don't know where to go. It's 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 an interesting thing. Yes, for sure. You know, so much of my professional effort uh, is dedicated towards getting people back to the things they were doing before, you know, whatever problem occurred. Um, I was struck by a recent uh, podcast that you did, and the title was Pivot. Ooh. And and how do you think about those two things? Like, when is it important to strive to get back to the things that were important to you? And when do you think it's important to sort of reorient? Oh, boy. You know, everybody, that's different for everybody. It's It's almost as if right now so many things are happening at once. I mean, people really just aren't thinking about their health because obviously I'm lucky enough that you know, I don't have to work for money, that I would be fine no matter what. But so we have a thing where you do have to put your health first. And but now you're also having to pivot and think about where's the money going to come from for you to pay your everyday bills, for you to buy the food to keep yourself healthy or whatever it may be. So I really don't quite know how to answer that question to tell you the truth. Right. Um, do you know do you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it it um I think it speaks to when are we aspirational and when are we more realistic and which things serve you better in different situations. Yeah. It's you know, I'm always well now I'm based in reality. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, but it's almost easier to not be based in reality when it's, it's, you know, the time that I always say to people that they'll turn their financial lives around is when they've used up all their credit limit on all their credit cards. Mm -hmm. Then they have to deal with reality. The same is true with health. You deal with reality of your health when you can't put anything else on your health credit card. Like you've used up all the possibilities and then you're forced to deal with reality. So it's a hard one to answer. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess I'm hopeful that people will uh, take away from your experience that they should put a priority on their, their health. Yes. Um, yeah. They should. And, they should. But here is the problem, right? Many of them don't have the money in their mind to do so. We're in a possibility where they may lose ACA, you know, and then what are they going to do? So mm -hmm. health and wealth are so intricately combined. It's not even funny. I'm afraid to go to the doctor because I don't have insurance. I'm afraid to go to the doctor because I don't have the money to pay my deductible. I'm afraid to do this. And do you, But do you see how closely health and wealth are one? 
So it's really important that that people take care of their wealth, but it's even more important that they take care of their health. And for so many years, I've had this saying, people first, then money, then things. And Mm -hmm. I really think I need to change that to it's not people first, it's your health. You know, health first, then wealth, then things. Because I can tell you this, and all of you already know this, and you see it, that, that all the money in the world doesn't mean anything if you don't have your health. It means absolutely nothing. Nothing. So all of you listening and that are on this podcast, you know, are some of the greatest life bankers that have been put on this world. Because without you, I really wouldn't have had my life. If I had gone to another surgeon, and it's very possible that I wouldn't have had use of my right arm. Don't you think, Doc? I think there was a risk of that. There was a risk of that. See, he's such a gentleman. He's never going to say what I think is probably really true. But if I really believe that if I had gone to this one doctor that I was thinking about going to, I would be in a very different situation than I am right now where everything is fine. Really, everything is exactly how it should be. And so it's, um, you know, so you really are quite the life banker. It's an yeah, interesting well, it, way to put think about yourselves. It is, it is uh, you know, we're really privileged to do the work that we do. Uh, I speak for myself, but I think most of the people that are going to be seeing this podcast are hearing it. Um, and... Uh, but part of the reason that it was such a pleasure taking care of you is that you were such a good partner in your own care. And I think that's a part of the story we need to get out there as well. Well, I may have been a good partner in my own care and what I did, but I was I'm also somebody that I would only wish this on everybody that has this devout faith that everything happens for the best. That, you know, grace is really above praise and blame. And sometimes you can have people that maybe you've done an incredible job for. Everything is really great. And yet they're, they're, they're stuck into this thing of why did this happen to me? Why am I going through this? What did I do wrong that, that I, I had to do this? And I really, from my gut, believe that everything is a blessing from God. Everything is a gift and you just have to unwrap it. So attitude has a whole lot to do with the outcome of a situation. I will forever, ever believe that. Yeah, for sure. And uh, it's uh, training and education, but it also the grit and determination that went into uh, the surgery, but into the recovery also. Yeah. Those things all, all work to our favor. Those little nerves that fire. (laughs) Poor Dr. Mike. I can't tell you how many emails and calls he's gotten from KT saying, when is her arm going to be okay? Because what was interesting, everybody, even though everything on my right side had been affected, after the operation, it was my left side that was giving me problems. So even my left foot would burn at night, the bottom of it. And even and three months later, and today really is the first day that it's feeling pretty good, Doc. Is that the the nerves in my left arm? Oh my God! It's like 
painful as can be. Oh my God. And so it was like, Mike, when is this going to be over? Like, how long does a nerve take? And, you know, I finally have come to just accept that, okay, it could be another four or five months before it really is like it should be. But today was the first day that when I went to bend my arm, it didn't feel like an alien arm. It, did, it kind yeah. of felt like, oh, my arm's back. So yeah. one just also has to have patience. And what's really important for the role of the doctor is rather than saying, oh, you'll be okay in five or six weeks, and then maybe the patient isn't, I would rather hear you say, you know, it could take six months to a year. And if they're okay in three months, great. But to set their expectations really, really low, that it's not going to be easy, that it could be six months, it could be a year. So at least they're not disappointed as to why is it still hurting? It should have been okay. It's why isn't it okay? So that's an important thing to remember. Yep, for sure. Now, Susie, if I may, um, you know, you're obviously someone that we could talk to for hours about any topic, um, but we would be remiss on behalf of our audience if while we had you and, and had access to all of your experience, if we didn't try to get you to put on your professional hat and give us some advice. Um, one of the most interesting aspects, I think, of the story you just shared with us in, in all your discussion of fear and mastering that fear and acting in the face of it, uh, you know, it's obvious to anyone who knows you and your work and obvious to anyone who's been listening to this conversation that you're such a dominant personality and you have control of any room that you're in. And I can imagine yeah. being in your shoes, someone like that, to then, you know, going through this experience that you just detailed for us, putting your life, putting your safety in someone else's hands, that must have been difficult for you, I imagine. And so having gone through that story, I'd like you to get back on top and, and get back in the driver's seat and now, uh, you know, get back to your usual want of telling people what to do and giving advice and being the one with authority in the room. So if we could, uh, for the remainder of this discussion, we'd like to shift gears and have you put on your professional hat and maybe talk about finances as might be relevant to our audience within neurosurgery. So you have to give as much attention to your wealth as you do to other people's health. That's where I would start that conversation. But you can ask me any question you want now. Wow, what a conversation. What an experience talking with her and what a story Susie Orman had to share with us today. If any of that resonated with you folks, even 10% as much as it did with me, please don't miss part two of this conversation with Susie Orman, where we turn our focus to discuss finances as relevant to healthcare and healthcare workers, and we tap the expert for some free advice. And I'll tell you, Susie put yours truly in the hot seat at one point and took me to church. So stay tuned for next week when we air part two of our conversation with Susie Orman. Well, JP, that was a great episode. Now, I want to just take a minute at the end of this podcast to reach out to our listeners. And I'm going to make an assumption that everybody listening out there cares about neurosurgery, whether it's us as a field or us as neurosurgeons or that you want to be a neurosurgeon or you care about what we provide for patients. Um, in that light, everybody knows that the training is arduous and it takes a long time and it's very expensive. So 
Uh, I want to make you aware of the NREF, which is the Neurosurgery Research and Education Foundation, which has been in operations in the AANS. It's the philanthropic arm of the AANS and has been for many decades now. NREF uh, funds all kinds of important initiatives, including basic science research, clinical studies, resident education for courses, fellow education, and fellowships. But of course, that doesn't come cheap. So we've raised uh, monies over the years, and for every dollar invested in NREF, for example, it comes back as $36 in NIH-funded uh, research for our field. So it's a, it's a huge return on the investment. I myself am a Cushing-level uh, donor, which means I've contributed a great deal of money myself to NREF because it's so important. But I want to make you aware of a different way to invest, which doesn't actually cost you anything. We've just heard Mike Groff and Susie Orman talk about uh, investing in health and in life. Mike Groff is actually the chair of NREF now, and Susie Orman talks about investing. So we've partnered with Amazon and Amazon Smile to do something that's very easy for you to do. All you've got to do is go to smile.amazon.com. Select NREF, N-R-E-F, or the Neurosurgery Research and Education Foundation as the, um, the entity which you would like the donations to go to. And for that, Half a percent of everything you spend at Amazon goes to NREF, and that comes at no cost to you. So as an example, if you spend $1,000, NREF gets $5 from Amazon. Now, it doesn't seem like much, right? But some of us out there spend a lot on Amazon, and there are a lot of neurosurgeons, and it recurs. So think about this as you plan your holiday shopping. Please go online if you use Amazon to go to smile.amazon.com, register. Remember, it's free money. Don't leave it on the table.